Hi, everybody. Welcome to the ninth episode of Producing the Beatles, the podcast dedicated to exploring the untold story of producer George Martin's revolutionary collaboration with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I'm your host, Jason Krupa. In our last episode, we discussed the Get Back, Let It Be sessions of January 1969, where George Martin admitted he'd lost control. Today, we'll wind the clock back to June 1968, where the drift between Martin and the Beatles began at the very start of the White Album sessions. When the Beatles returned to England from their trip to India in May 1968, they brought with them around 30 new songs. For many of these, they recorded home demos with fleshed out arrangements, in quite a few cases, featuring several band members playing on each demo. Among these compositions was a new song by John. Just as John had led the way with one of his compositions at the beginning of sessions for the Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper albums, so too did he kick off the White Album sessions, which commenced with the recording of this song. The Beatles' intuitive creative process had led them to record multiple versions of songs in the past on the way to the final arrangement. But with Revolution, John's aspirations for the song meant that, for the first time, they would release three different recordings with essentially the same name. A slower version, a fast distorted version, and the over eight minute long sound collage which John called nine, Revolution 9. Number 9, 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 number 9. That last one is maybe the most controversial recording in the Beatles' catalog. But what was John's motivation for creating Revolution 9? As we'll see, it's connected to the other two versions in surprising ways and it's as complex a recording as any of the Beatles ever undertook. Given the recording's complexity, what's also surprising is George Martin's role in producing Revolution 9. In these next two episodes, we'll examine the process that took the Beatles through the creation of these three very different recordings. In part one, we'll look at how Revolution split into Revolution 1 and Revolution 9 including a critical missing link between these two recordings that didn't see the light of day until 2010. In part two, we'll look at the recording of the faster, electrified version that was released as a single with Hey Jude. Today, we'll talk with former New York Times music critic Alan Cozen about these recordings, and we'll also learn what George Martin thought of Revolution 9 and how his surprising perspective on that recording led to an unexpected and very public response from John Lennon himself. So join us as we look at the multiple sides of revolution on this episode of Producing the Beatles. Number nine. <laughs>
When sessions for their new album began at the end of May 1968, George Martin hoped he could get the Beatles to build on from the continuous flowing structure of Sgt. Pepper to create a full album of interconnected songs. But while the recordings began hopefully, Martin would soon realize that the Beatles' intentions were becoming very different from his own. The Beatles were beginning to take more control in the studio and were determined to make the album they wanted to make. The first few sessions reflected this shift. On the first day of recording, May 30th, 1968, the Beatles laid down a rhythm track of piano, acoustic guitar, and drums. Most of the takes of Revolution, as the song was called at this point, ran to about the five-minute mark. But this take, take 18, ran over 10 minutes. The first four minutes or so were the main body of the song, with the remainder being a long, repeated two-chord vamp. It was onto this take that they began recording overdubs the following day. First, two vocals by John, then Paul's bass. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out in? Don't you know it's gonna be? One of these vocal tracks ran through most of that long ending, with John riffing on the words of the chorus growling, mumbling, and even yelling them out. All right, 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 The Beatles were still recording to four-track tape. As we discussed in episode four, they wouldn't switch to eight-track until later in the summer. So these parts filled the open tracks, leading to a tape reduction to take 19, which made space for Paul and George to do their backing vocals. A further tape reduction to take 20 mixed all of the above parts down to one track. This left three tracks free, and at this point, on June 4th, Revolution started to become something else entirely. Now, rather than fade the mix at a little over four minutes in, which is what the version we know on the White Album does, the Beatles, and it was still all the Beatles working on the song at this point, also overdubbed onto the long two-chord vamp of those last six minutes. First, throughout the song, they added a tone pedal guitar, played by John, more drums and percussion, played by Ringo, as well as an organ, played by Paul. Paul and George added falsetto Mama Dada backing vocals in this section as well. When it came time to mix the song, John had two tape loops running on separate machines, which he fed into the mixing desk. The most prominent of these two loops was a high-pitched vocal recording, sung by all four Beatles. 
John faded the loops in and out of the mix throughout the song. Then, toward the end, he faded the band track out completely and faded in a recording from a cassette Yoko Ono had made. This featured an intentionally simplistic piano part and a haunting, mysterious vocal in the background, along with an enigmatic spoken word performance by Yoko, the most memorable part of which was... You become naked. In all, both recording and mixing, this session ran from 2.30 p.m. to 1 a.m., ten and a half hours. This mix, labeled Remix Mono 1, or RM1, of Take 20, was spellbindingly chaotic, but it was never officially released. It finally showed up in 2010 on bootleg and even got some radio play. You can find the whole thing online, and if you haven't heard it, it's worth listening to in its entirety for how it unravels into a glorious, fascinating mess. The sound of the Beatles charging deep into uncharted territory. After John took a copy of this tape home to listen to, he pushed this mix aside. But those last six minutes of Revolution Take 20 gave John an idea. He wanted to go further. Earlier in 1968, John had begun a relationship with Yoko Ono, and most people generally assume that she was the prime motivation for creating the recording that John would eventually call Revolution 9. It's not an unreasonable assumption, either. After classical piano training in childhood, and then time at Sarah Lawrence College, studying the works of 12-tone composers like Arnold Schoenberg, Yoko, by the early 60s, had fallen in with avant-garde composers in New York like John Cage and Lamont Young, who were pushing the conceptual boundaries of what music could be. This is the same thread that John and Paul picked up several years later, which led to Tomorrow Never Knows, the idea that any sounds could be made into music. But Yoko had already been immersed in that world for quite some time. Seeing that she was an artist steeped in these avant-garde exercises, it makes sense that she would have encouraged any experimental inclinations she saw in John. But those inclinations were certainly already present, and not just with John, but with the other Beatles as well. I'm Alan Cozen. I was a music critic for the New York Times for about 38 years, retired in 2014, and now write for whoever I want. Which in is November most... 2018, in New Jersey, at Monmouth University's Academic Conference on the White Album, Alan gave a talk about the various versions of revolution, and how he sees them as three connected pieces, a revolution trilogy, as he calls it. We'll get to that in part two. But first, Let's put Revolution 9 in perspective. So for people who assume that Yoko is the cause of John going into all this crazy stuff, I would remind those people that as far back as Revolver in 1966, when Yoko wasn't even on the scene in the Beatle world, 
Paul was making tape loops to bring in for John's Tomorrow Never Knows, and the process of making that song was in a lot of ways similar to Revolution 9, in that the loops were being played in studios all over the Abbey Road complex and fed into a master mixing board and being mixed together at the time they were making the track. And in the same way, the next thing they did that was like it at all was Carnival of Light. Um, Paul had been asked to give a piece to a sort of avant-garde festival called Carnival of Light, and Paul brought in the idea. The rest of the Beatles participated, and they just did this sort of freeform avant-garde piece, much more random, much more freeform, John shouting Barcelona, whatever else is going on. And after that actually there's there's another piece sort of like that that doesn't get talked about much which is a percussion piece that Ringo did of all people you don't think of Ringo as the great avant-gardist in the Beatles mm-hmm. but they did a strange presumably avant-garde style percussion piece that Ringo was in charge of and then I am the walrus when they're making the final mix of I am the walrus they decided for whatever reason to bring in whatever the BBC was playing which happened to be a production of King Lear. God knows what would have been on. I mean, we think of King Lear as being intrinsic to I Am the Walrus. You know, I Am the Walrus does not end until he says, Sit you down, Father. Rest you. It's an important part of it really now, uh, but it could have been anything. I mean, who knows? If they had done that mix 10 minutes later, it would have been some other part of King Lear, or it might have been something else entirely. As Alan says, Two years earlier, on Tomorrow Never Knows, the first song recorded for the Revolver album, the Beatles had already dabbled in the possibilities of tape loops. Inspired by experimental composers like Karlheinz Stockhausen and Luciano Berrio, they made five tape loops for Tomorrow Never Knows and ran them on five separate tape machines, which George Martin had fed into the mixing desk. Paul faded these in and out to achieve the effects he wanted as an overdub to the rest of the recording. But what if we remove the rest of the recording, so all we're left with is the tape loops? This is oversimplifying things a little, but it's not a bad way of beginning to understand the next step in the development of the recording or revolution, because John was now concentrating his energy on the tape loops and the sound effects. As a producer, George Martin certainly had some interest in the avant-garde. Just listen to the experimental recording technique we discussed in episode one. But Martin's goal with these experimental ideas was to use them to create memorable sounds in a piece of commercial music, which is what the Beatles had done on Tomorrow Never Knows. They'd applied avant-garde techniques within a pop music framework, albeit an extremely adventurous one. Revolution 9 is part of the same tradition of experimental recording that Tomorrow Never Knows drew from. But rather than fusing these techniques with a pop song to create a new hybrid, 
Lennon explicitly set out to make an evocative sound collage with scarcely a nod in the direction of pop music. Paul had mentioned Stockhausen's name in the press before, but with Revolution 9, references to the influential German composer became much more concrete. The recording you're hearing now, Stockhausen's Gesang der Jünglinge, or Songs of the Youth, is a 13-minute piece consisting mostly of electronically generated tones. But throughout the recording, there are also the voices of boy sopranos, which have a very distinctive effect. Listen to this haunting passage from Stockhausen's composition. And then this from Revolution 9. Gesang der Junglinge, it's high voices, it's young boys, and in here, you know, you're hearing the sopranos. The melodic shape of the two sections is not vastly different. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of an uncanny similarity. And, you know, because probably John did hear Gesang der Junglinge, it's very possible that when he heard this loop backwards from the Vaughan Williams, it struck something familiar for him. That would be an explicit connection. But Alan hears something else, too. I hear a lot of connections between another Stockhausen piece, which is called Hymnen and Revolution 9, but I can't in any way prove that John would have heard it because I don't think a recording of it was released by 1968, and yet it's an electronic piece that was finished in 1967, so it may have been broadcast or there may have been some way that Paul might have been able to get his hands on a tape of it and play it for John, much as I believe he must have played him Gesander Junglinger because they shared their enthusiasms in those days. And this is something that Paul ran into and probably, you know, thought this is really cool and different. Let me play it for John. This is more of an actual sound collage, like Revolution 9 would be. But whatever the specific inspiration, this is the general frame of reference John was working from. And just as he had done since he began seeing the Beatles take an interest in recording, George Martin knew to let John have his creative process. In fact, as usual, he facilitated that creative process. On June 6th, John began compiling sound effects and making loops, with Martin providing input regarding what was available in EMI's tape library and, as always, what was technically possible. Yoko had some input here, and George Martin's assistant, Chris Thomas, also remembers helping John make loops. George and Ringo flew to America on the 7th, so they weren't present on June 10th when John spent three more hours compiling further sound effects. On June 11th, while Paul was in Studio 2 recording Blackbird from start to finish, John was still camped out in Studio 3, working with his effects tapes. You know, just to give a sense of what they were looking at for loops and what they were doing in making the loops, because they weren't just getting bits of recordings and sampling them in effect, right. uh, what later would be called sampling, they're actually doing things to them. So for instance, you have a recording of Dame Myra Hess playing Schumann's symphonic variations, a solo piano piece. Her recording, the section they use, sounds like this.
the way they use it is backwards. And you have to assume that with John, while certain things that may have been accidents that strike his fancy are kept and made sometimes into important parts of his songs, he also is making, you know, conscious choices. And I think this is a case where there's a conscious choice because backwards, it doesn't even sound like a piano. It has a kind of eerie sound that suits the project that he's building. There's also the Sibelius Seventh Symphony, the final chord, uh, which is really a big, grand chord that has the effect of, you know, like a, a, a an almost cinematic climax. Then, of course, there's Rayfon Williams' choral piece, Oh, Clap Your Hands. And again, John wanted this backwards. I suppose it might not have made much sense to have a choral setting going forwards. You've got words, all kinds of things. I think that, you know, they talk about using the EMI library, but there's nothing to say that he didn't bring in things from home, too. Mm -hmm. Somehow or other, they found a recording that was very popular in the Arab world by Farid al-Atrash, who was a singer and actor. He was an Egyptian-Syrian artist, and he had a very popular song called Abal Hamsa. I'm going to play a bit of the recording starting just before the bit that they use, just so that you can get the context. In addition to these pieces, there were many, many others. One is the now famous loop number nine, number nine, number nine, made from a Royal Academy of Music training tape that EMI had in its library at the time. There's a reverse loop of electric bass, a backward guitar, a passage from a string quartet, a backward rock recording with strings. There were sound effects too, like crackling fire, a gun battle, crowd noises, applause. In all, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 different sounds and effects and loops appearing and reappearing in Revolution 9. Number nine. And they obviously couldn't all be playing at once. All of these pieces would have to be mixed, much like the loops on Tomorrow Never Knows had been mixed. But in 1968, there was no computer to load all this into. There were only tapes. So how to accomplish this, given all the elements at play, and what was the ultimate intent? First, the how. Here's John recalling the mixing session for Revolution 9 in a 1974 radio interview. How much 
of Revolution Number no. 9 from the White Album yeah. was accidental? Uh, well, it's like an action painting. I had a lot of loops, tape loops, which is just a circle of tape, if people don't understand it, that repeats itself over and over. had about ten of them on different mono machines, all spinning at once with pencils and things holding them. I had a basic track, which was the end of the Revolution song, where we'd gone on and on and on and on. And I just played it sort of live into another tape and just brought them in on faders, like you do as a DJ, and brought them in like that. And it was accidental in that way. I think I did it twice, maybe. And the second one was the take. In 1977, in response to a question from a doctoral student in music, George Martin backed up part of John's memory of this session, calling the mixing of Revolution 9, quote, an improvisation. But John's comment here about using the backing track of Revolution 1 needs a little clarification, because he only used one of the elements from that backing track, his growling, mumbling, yelling vocal track from the long coda of Take 18, which he would fade in and out of this new recording. Once he had all his sounds together, John copied many of the recordings he'd collected onto a brand new four-track tape. Then, on January 20th, he took over all three studios at Abbey Road from 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. Here's the scene. As John's previously prepared four-track tape was playing back, other quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape machines were running all over Abbey Road studios with technicians spooling loops and each tape machine feeding into the mixing board. John sat at the faders, bringing sounds from the four-track and the loops in and out of the mix and panning them left and right across the stereo soundstage. Even though the mixing may have been improvisational, John's choice of sounds was not, and having selected or made the tapes he was using, he must have had some sense of what he wanted to create. Remember, the name of this recording is revolution. You know, I think at first when you hear it, there's just so much going on that it's hard to process. It's not like, you know, when you listen to the Goldberg variations, you hear bits of the theme in varied forms coming through each variation, which is a different process of dealing with that theme. He's kind of doing that here, but it's so much more complicated because the sounds are not normally what we think of as musical sounds in a lot of cases, um, and mixed with other musical sounds that are backwards. Mm -hmm. And you've got number nine turns up all kinds of times during the course of this thing, the backwards piano, the guitar figure. It really takes a while to sort of process how all these things are rising and falling within the mix, and that's what John's doing. Now, that, that doesn't negate the possibility that there's a certain amount of this that's also random, because John and Yoko were into random too, but I think John also had an organizational overlay for this track that was a kind of narrative. The thing does sort of tell a story without telling a specific story, you you can't say this is definitely happening here, except, for instance, the section where you hear gunshots. You know, that's quite clearly like the middle of the worst part of the revolution. This is meant to be challenging stuff. John wasn't making this to be easy listening. On the contrary, he wanted it to be difficult listening. And a lot of Beatles fans certainly have found it difficult, 
even impossible to listen to. But if we approach Revolution 9 as something cinematic, a depiction of the sounds of a literal revolution, John's intent becomes a lot clearer. And it's this sense of purpose that really distinguishes Revolution 9 as a sound collage. Yeah, you know, as part of my work as a classical music critic, I run into electronic music and sound collages and found music pieces, uh, you know, fairly frequently. And sometimes they're great, sometimes they're a waste of time. There are some really great composers who have done them, you know, Stockhausen, I mean, going all the way back to Edgar Varese, Henri Poussur. There is sort of a hierarchy of famous composers in that genre who've done great work. But Revolution 9 seems to me really almost in a class by itself. I mean, it does the same things that those kinds of pieces do, but it also has, I think, more of a clear narrative edge. You know, you know what he's talking about because of the other revolutions in the series and from his interviews at the time. I mean, you're you're getting the idea that he's painting a very specific portrait. A lot of sound collages are just bringing together sounds that, you know, through accident or design happen to go together well or tickle the ear or create surprising transitions and are absolute music in a way. You know, the, the music is just about the music. But Revolution Number 9 is actually also about something. He's painting a portrait of basically a society or a world's collapsing in on itself under the pressure of the revolution happening. Recording engineer Richard Lush, who worked on the sessions, told author Mark Lewison that it was John Lennon who produced this recording. And while George Martin would defend Revolution 9 in later interviews, if there's a track where his production aesthetic doesn't seem very much in evidence, it's this one. And yet, in a three-part interview with Melody Maker that ran in August and September of 1971, Martin had this to say, quote, It was just an extension of Tomorrow Never Knows, a similar kind of thing with various tapes. And I guess this was largely influenced by Yoko because it was her kind of scene. But again, I was painting a picture in sound. And if you sat in front of the speakers, you just lost yourself in stereo. End quote. John immediately wrote a letter to the paper in response, saying that Revolution 9 was his concept fully. He then went on to say, quote, For Martin to state that he was painting a picture in sound is pure hallucination. Ask any of the other people involved. The final editing, Yoko and I did, alone. End quote. John was so bothered by Martin's remarks that he brought them up again just a few days later, on September 9th, 1971, in an interview in New York with Howard Smith. George Martin's been doing a three-part serial, and the Melody Maker, while most of it's fairly fair and reasonable, and uh, although it sometimes differs from my memory of what happened, some of it is just downright lies, so I just wrote in and corrected him, you know. He's making statements about how Revolution Number 9 was made, and he's saying how he pictured this sound picture, and I wrote to him and the paper saying that uh, I'm sick of the cameraman taking credit for the, what the director did, you know, and that's what he's doing. I made Revolution Number 9. Four hours of editing was done with Yoko and I alone in a room after everybody else had left the thing mm. alone. And he's claiming he, he, that was his picture, you know. Mm. Uh, George and Ringo and George Martin and one other engineer fetched and carried and helped me put together about a hundred loops 
and uh, George and Ringo running up and downstairs getting different soundtracks for me and suggesting things, obviously if they were there, but mainly helping me physically. George Martin was sort of helping me by naming uh, what stuff I could use from the vaults and helping me technically, of course, and the engineer to help me technically. And he's writing all sorts of guff there. So why such disagreement? Martin's comment that he saw this as a continuation of Tomorrow Never Knows gives us some insight. He saw Revolution 9 as a continuation and development of his own approach to the recording studio as an instrument in its own right. Even if the Beatles had become incredibly adept at working in the studio, and John's conception and management of the Revolution 9 recording was evidence of this, Martin may have reasoned that it was he who had introduced them to the possibilities of the studio, and he had helped translate their abstract ideas into concrete recordings. By the time he gave this interview in 1971, Martin was beginning to fashion the narrative about his work with the Beatles that he would tell and revise throughout the rest of his life. This is the kind of storytelling we all do about our own lives, where we interpret situations in ways that reflect our own self-image. So even if years later, Martin would be more nuanced about his side of the Beatles story, he was in 1971 still portraying himself as the man in charge in the studio. And without a doubt, in some cases in 1968, he still was. The original recording of Revolution, now titled Revolution One, still sat waiting to be finished, and John requested an arrangement for horns. With the recording now faded at the 416 mark, Martin wrote a score for two trumpets and four trombones. Martin and Lennon finished off the mixes for both Revolution 1 and Revolution 9 on June 25th, with John intending Revolution 1 as the A-side of the Beatles' next single. But Paul and George thought the recording too slow, and Paul's Hey Jude, which they would begin recording at the end of the next month, would seem to be a much stronger contender for the A-side. But John wasn't about to let this song simply be an album track. It clearly meant too much to him. So he moved to record it again. But we'll save that for part two. Revolution take yeah, 20. Oh, yeah. I take two. Okay. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by Jason Krupa. That's me. Special thanks to Steve Benson once again for many of the isolations you heard in this episode and to Alan Cozen for talking to us about Revolution 9. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PT Beatles. And for more information, including show notes and references, be sure to visit our website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let everyone know about us every way you can. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, Subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. Revolution.